Welcome, my friends, to the Chris Rawl Show. I am Chris Rawl, and there are so many things to talk about. My head is going to explode. We are in the midst of the NFL draft. We are in the midst of the NBA playoffs, and we are staring down the barrel of the Stanley Cup playoffs. It is a very good time to be a sports fan. It is also a very good time to sign up for my newsletter, frankly, which is easy and free. All you need to do is go to chrisrawl.com, click the subscribe button, Put your email in and every Wednesday you will get my unfiltered thoughts about all of those subjects and more. However, enough of that. We need to get to today's show because I have so many things to talk about. And I'm going to ask one question that we will start with. When does promise turn to stagnation? On the most basic of levels, everything needs room to grow. Uh, Think of a plant. You plant the seed. You need water. You need sunlight. You need time. All of those things are required for a plant to flourish. And depending on what kind it is, a rose bush or a strawberry bush or a nice giant oak tree, the time frame on that period of growth and what it becomes is very, very different. You can have your short-term plants, you can have your really long-term plants that are taking hundreds of years to do anything. I I used to work at Sprinkler Supply Company in Spanish Fork, Utah, and I would have a lot of conversations with these old gardening ballers who would come in and they'd have new plants that needed to be planted and they need their drip system set up this way and a garden valve over here and this and this and this. Sometimes I hated them, sometimes I thought it was funny. But they'd always come in and and be excited about this particular process. They'd say, I have a new, do you know what a mulberry bush is? And I go, hell no. What do I look like, a freak? Or they'd come in and they'd talk about their new tomato plant that they got. Have you heard of this kind of strain? I go, no, no, I, I I don't know anything about these. I work at Sprinkler Supply Company, okay? I can pick out the correct drip emitter. Let's go get a one gallon per hour. Let's put this over here. We can do this. And through this process, you know, the same people would be coming back because these gardening ballers, they're really into that. So every month they'd come back to get new things and report on what's grown and what's not. And they'd say, oh, that mulberry bush, it worked out immaculately. Look at this picture. They'd be showing me things on their phone. And other times it would fail. Just a horrendous process. They'd say, oh, I go, how'd the carrots go? You know, the, the new carrots you plant. They go, they're dead. I go, what happened? And sometimes they could pinpoint what went wrong. They'd say a freeze set in and it just killed it all or a dog came and tore it out because dogs are the worst creatures on earth or stuff like that. And other times they couldn't pinpoint anything at all. They would say, well, it's dead. And I go, why? They go, I don't know. I gave it water. I gave it sunlight. I gave it time. I gave it nutrient-rich soil. I gave it everything. The best of my knowledge, nothing really occurred, but just it, it didn't grow in the manner that I thought it would. So there's a lot of parallels between that version of my professional life and the next step in my professional life, which was you have startup Silicon Slopes, interviewing entrepreneurs. It's the same kind of process that I would talk to these people about that centered on that idea. Room is needed for growth. The ingredients, it's different in the business world, but it's a similar process. You replace all the water and the sunlight and the time, and then you go, okay, 
We need to establish a culture. We need to hire the best possible people. We need a product that is good. We need to be in the right time and the right place. All of these things that entrepreneurs just speak ad nauseum. And over the course of these years of interviewing entrepreneurs, I'd get kind of the same feedback. You know, sometimes it would work out immaculately. I'd have people going, yeah, my business, it's worth $15 million now. And it was worth nothing two years ago. And I'd have other people going, my business is worth $2 billion now. Look at this incredible 10-year growth curve that occurred because of reasons X, Y, and Z. And sometimes it would fail horrendously. And they'd talk about just the darker side of entrepreneurship, which was, yeah, I had to declare bankruptcy. Yeah, it was a really tough emotional storm that I had to weather because I lost everything in this particular business. Stuff that, you know, you don't really wish on anybody. That's part of entrepreneurship. That's just, there's a good and a bad to everything, I guess, right? And much like these old gardeners in the entrepreneur world, I would hear similar feedback. Sometimes people knew what went wrong and what went right. They would pinpoint it and say, this is why we failed. This is why we didn't. And other times they couldn't, which I'd made a mental note of because I'm always interested in the great unknowable aspects of life. And they would say, I don't know. I thought we did everything right. We weren't burning through money. The product was good. We had good people. The culture was there. I thought it was the right time. I thought it was the right place. And just for whatever reason, it really didn't catch on in the way that it made sense it would in my mind. When does promise turn to stagnation? That's a question that I think about a lot. Some of it is tied into these past experiences the sprinkler world, the business world. A lot of it's tied into my present day situation of, I really love golf. I do it a lot. I'm always trying to improve in that particular area. And through that process, I'm going, I always want to get better. But what I fight daily, especially now as I get further and further into my career, is the scary uh, look in the mirror type moment of, uh, when... When have I become what I'm going to become? When does that promise, that growth curve, when does it start to plateau? When does it start to descend with age? That kind of stuff. I like to always think, no, I'm, I'm, I'm always on the upward ascent. Even if the progress is incremental and slow. I'm putting in the time. I'm putting in the effort. I'm, I'm searching out all those ingredients that are needed to be the best version of yourself in whatever facet that you want. And so I, I have to believe that I'm still slowly, slowly inching and crawling. And maybe I never get to a place that I think I can in my mind, but I'm always trying. When does promise plateau is a very, very, very intriguing question. In my own life, it's a very intriguing question in the world of sports as I watch. Identifying players who have room to grow and then giving them that room if you were a part of that team. And trusting that you will see the fruits of those labors. It's a really intense process that mirrors all of these things I'm mentioning, especially that business side where there's a good, there's a bad. In the world of sports, you give your athletes room to grow, put them in the best situation. You say, you have immense potential. We think you could be a championship centerpiece. You trust that you're going to see the fruits of those labors after years and years and years. Uh, the harsh reality in the world of sports is the vast majority of those efforts will end in failure relative to that expectation that we have a championship centerpiece. That's a really hard thing to obtain. That player on a basketball team, 
that you go, no, no, no. I know if we build around this person and do it right, we could win a championship. We will win a championship. A lot of people have fallen by the wayside in that particular search. I think back on the career of somebody like Russell Westbrook, who is a cautionary tale, but you have to give him the room that he was given throughout his career, despite the warts. You have to, especially if you're Oklahoma City. Small market, you got a young team back when Russell Westbrook's there, James Harden, Kevin Durant. And with Westbrook, you go, the talent and athleticism, it's right at the tippy top of the league. It is so incredible and explosive. It's just a powder keg of dynamite. Right from an early age. Uh, 23, Russell Westbrook, he's helping lead the Thunder to the NBA Finals against Miami. In 2012, he goes nuclear by himself in game four, almost single-handedly wins the game for them. And though they lose that game and the series, it seems very reasonable to assume that this team, and especially this player, Russell Westbrook, is a championship caliber team. Everybody thought that. I thought that. There was nobody who thought otherwise. They had what turned out to be three MVPs on their roster. Now, they jettison James Harden, and he's given more room to grow rather than being a six-man off Oklahoma City's bench. He's now the centerpiece of Houston and turns into an MVP. And the Thunder keep hacking away with Westbrook and Durant. And for, you know, whatever reason, years go by. They're losing to the Spurs. They're just, they can't quite get over the top. And four years after that NBA Finals appearance, it's kind of the ultimate swinging doors moment of Westbrook's career, Durant's career. The Oklahoma City Thunder is an organization, everything. They're in the Western Conference Finals against 73-win Golden State. They are up 3-1 in that series. They just have to win one out of the remaining three games. They go to Golden State in game five, lose a hard-fought game. Game six is the ultimate just swinging doors moment of at least the last decade for what happened afterwards because of it. But Oklahoma City, they're leading all game. They're leading all game. It seems like it's their time. They got all these long athletic players. They have the two stars at the center with Westbrook and Durant. And Thompson goes nuclear in the fourth quarter of that game, brings Golden State back. They win. They win another relatively close game in game seven. They move on. Thunder blown up. Durant says, I don't want to be here. I'm out. I'm going joining Golden State. And Westbrook becomes just the centerpiece of the team. Now, coming out of that series, questions abounded about both of those players. For me, I, I didn't have a lot about Durant. I just thought, eh, I don't think the situation's great for him. There are certain things I think he could be better at, which he's improved in some areas throughout his career and others. He's just kind of stayed the same. But he's a, a great all-time player. My questions at the time were more tied into Westbrook. Because at age 23, when he's doing that in the NBA Finals, I thought, man, this is a championship centerpiece player. His athleticism is too much for any team to handle. It's like a free safety here playing basketball. He's just exploding by everybody. And four years later, I'm going, uh, I don't know. I'm not as sure what I think about this particular player. My questions, they were really tied into Probably, if I'm being fair, I, I don't like a specific type of basketball player, which Westbrook over the course of his career has really proven to be. And at that time, I was sensing, I think this is just who he is. I think this is what he wants to be. He wants to be a, a ball dominant guard. He wants to run an offense that does not have flow, where he's just pounding the ball into the ground over and over and over and not, not really getting anybody involved. One of the main reasons Durant left. And he just doesn't really want to give the effort or gain the understanding on the defensive side of the ball that you really have to have in the playoffs, that you really need 
to be a championship centerpiece in my mind. So that combination of, of things doesn't really match up with what a championship centerpiece is in my mind. So Durant leaves, and we know the story, teams up with Paul George, but we just see kind of Westbrook on the complete downward slope. Somewhere along the line, all of this promise that was speaking to, this could be a, this should be a championship team, this could be a championship centerpiece player, it never really matched up to that. We're 14 seasons in, the jury is settled on Russell Westbrook. <laughs> Me and everybody else thinks, this is not a winning player. And even if you went back into his prime, and tried to build a team around him as the centerpiece, that was a misguided judgment. We know that now. We could not know that then. That's what makes this kind of stuff really hard. You have to give a player like that room to grow. If you're Oklahoma City, I would never in a million years, even knowing what we know now, I'm not going to ever fault them. It's a hindsight judgment call from somebody like me. Nobody in the moment thought, ugh, I don't really want that guy in my team. So if you're Oklahoma City back then, you say, all right, let's find the right mixture. Let's, let's try and find those ingredients, the water, the sunlight, the soil, whatever we need to give to this player to get the best version of them. We got to find that. You don't really have a choice if you're a small market team, period. But even if you're a big market team, you have a young player like that, that has potential that's sitting there whispering in your ear saying, Ooh, look at this. What could this be? You got to give it room to grow. The talent of Westbrook early on, it spoke to something really special. But time showed that to not be the case. So the flip side of that, the much rarer growth arc is the man who Westbrook lost to in those 2012 finals, LeBron. Whose journey of growth kind of culminated there. It was one of many culminations that were to come, but that was the first time where what LeBron is and would become really crystallized in everybody's mind simultaneously. There was a lot of varying opinions, a lot of questions going into the 2012 season about whether his individual promise had just kind of turned stagnant. If we understood what LeBron was as a player, I was not one of those people. I was arguing vehemently on the other side saying, no, the judgments that we are passing on LeBron at this stage of his career, they are very unfair based upon what he has been playing with. Now, this particular point in time between the 2011 and 2012 seasons, it's really incredible to look back on and I think should be studied for just the way that fans and media whip each other into a frenzy based off of results and that frenzy just feeds and feeds and feeds and turns into something that is not based in reality. So LeBron at the time, okay, he's heading into his ninth season in 2012. He has zero championships to his name. The first seven seasons of his career, that was all on his team. That's what I was arguing at the time. We now know that in retrospect. Everybody agrees on that. Cleveland Cavaliers did not do him justice building a championship team around him. The eighth season, his, his very first in Miami, 2011 season, when they lose to Dallas in the finals. Yeah, LeBron deserves some blame for that particular finals loss. He's... 18-7-7 seven seven in those finals against the Mavericks. And more importantly, it seemed like there was something going on mentally that nobody could really explain. Maybe we'll find out sometime down the road. Maybe we never will. But LeBron was more disengaged than you'll see normally. More tentative. Two things that I would never associate with LeBron before or especially since. 
they lose in game six. And you have the Skip Baylesses of the world getting out their megaphones and saying, this is why he is not a championship player. We know, we know what he is. He's been given all the room to grow in the world. And, and this is crystallized. We know that this is what he is. He's not a winning player. You can't build around him. He shrinks from the moment. All of the things that, again, in retrospect, look completely absurd. A lot of people said that. A lot of people believe that between the 2011 season and the 2012 season. He just joined up with Wade and Bosch, and they still couldn't win a championship because LeBron, there's something flawed within him. Look how he shrunk from the moment, all that kind of stuff. Now, this is the moment that I always point to that kind of offseason and especially the 2012 season. I point to it as the key to LeBron becoming LeBron. A different type of player in that offseason, yeah, might have gone down a different path. That's what separates LeBron from all those people that fall by the wayside. I think about somebody like Ben Simmons or James Harden in that situation. I go, I know, I know what those two players would do in that situation. They'd put on a lamb suit and sit around and plan for what club they could go out to the next night or what movie they could try and get into. And that's fine. That's their choice. There's a lot of players who I think when the going gets tough, I wouldn't really want is a championship centerpiece. That is a very hard thing to find, both physically and mentally. So LeBron goes the other way. Uh, growth at the time was perceived as stagnation. It was perceived as that plateau by a lot of people. It was actually just more growth. We didn't understand it fully. It was incremental, just the tiniest sliver trending upwards. Uh, going back to the business side of things, sometimes you have to fail a hell of a lot in order to find your ultimate success. This was probably the lowest point of LeBron's career, but it was a small piece of finding that right cocktail of growth, right? Think back to the plants. You got to find how much sunshine, how much water, how, what kind of soil. Think back to business. What, what culture do we need instilled to make this a billion dollar enterprise? Who do we need to hire? Is this the correct product for us? The 2012 season, LeBron taps into all of his immense physical gifts that we knew about and his immense mental gifts, which for many were up for debate. He refines his low post game, especially the passing that comes out of the low post. That's what I remember most vividly about him dissecting the Thunder in those finals. He goes into the lab and just continues to work on his jumper and on his three-point shot. Two things that dragged Miami to a championship the next season against San Antonio when they said, LeBron can do everything. We're going to try and pick what he's worst at relative to all of these things that he's an A-plus at. Uh, is his jumper going to hold up? Is his three-pointer going to hold up? Well, go back and watch game seven of that series. When San Antonio said, we're going to live and die with LeBron shooting these. If he does, we'll go home. And they went home. That was another growth arc as for LeBron as a player. And then last but not least, the most important side that I think was spawned out of the 2011 finals loss was a mental game that is unbreakable. For the last decade plus, we've seen a dude who is just, he is built for playoff basketball. You go back, if you want to just kind of pinpoint a, a specific game for that, well, game six of the Eastern Conference Finals in 2012 against Boston. That was the moment where I think the 
switch flipped in his mind. They're down 3-2. They're on the road against a team that had given him fits throughout his Cleveland career. KG's there talking shit in his ear. Paul Pierce, Rondo, Ray Allen, you name it, all those guys. Actually, no, not Ray Allen. Sorry, Ray Allen was on his team at this point, but you get the point. And LeBron comes out, scores 45, 15, 5, just burns him to a crisp, comes back, does the same thing in game seven. They're on to the finals. They're winning a championship. And that's the first time we go, okay. This is the first of a million instances since. Pick any playoff run since then where you just watch it and you go, okay, this guy is here for it. Not only is this a championship centerpiece, we've seen four times and many more in a bunch of finals losses where he's dragging his team there that should be nowhere near the NBA finals. We just see this is what LeBron has become. Uh, This is what happens when you get the rare, rare, rare mix of gifts, both physical and mental, situational improvement, as we saw with Miami and then his second stint in Cleveland and then the first part of his stint with Los Angeles. That's what you get. So every year, one of the most interesting parts of the playoffs to monitor is exactly what I'm talking about. It's identifying, okay, there's a lot of young talent in the league. For many of these people, this is a new situation being in the playoffs period. Who has room to grow? Uh, How do you give them room to grow? And at what point do we truly understand what a player is? That's a really interesting thing to track for someone like me because I can change my own opinion on it a lot of times. I can sit there thinking Russell Westbrook could be a championship centerpiece at 23 and four years later go, I'm not sure. And four years after that going, hell no. What was I thinking? Most people will be that. It'll be promise that's whispering in your ear that over the course of time, you understand, ah, maybe that person is not as good as I thought they could be because it's just really hard to be the best version of yourself in anything. So for these playoffs, I'm recording this before Thursday night's games, but the concept is just, it doesn't really matter who wins and who loses tonight as we track these particular four players or who I want to talk about three who still remain in the playoffs. As of this recording, again, they might be out by the time this released Friday morning and one who is already gone. There are four players that fit the bill that I'm talking about young, talented. There's definitely room to grow. Whether or not they will is another question. What's the best route to give them room to grow. That's up for debate. And then when do we just understand? When does it crystallize? that this is who this player is. All this up for debate. All of these players, they have wildly different opinions being flung around them depending on the time of the day. It's a hot take world. We love coming on after one playoff game and if there's a bad shooting night, this player's, this is why you can't win with them if they have a great shooting night. Well, this is the best player in the history of the NBA. Kind of the way that sports are covered now. I like to look at it in longer terms thinking about how it threads together, you know, think of it as kind of a tapestry. Just this is one thread that's being placed amongst many. Let's start with John Morant, who the key to the future of the Memphis Grizzlies is giving this dude room to grow. It just is. It reminds me a lot of those early Oklahoma City Thunder uh, questions that they're probably asking themselves as a franchise. Just we got a lot of young talent. How do we put it in position to succeed? John Morant is the centerpiece of that. Our ceiling is his ceiling, so we need to help him maximize that. What that ceiling is, 
I, I, I'm not sure. We're early on in the growth curve of this player and this team. We do know the track record of smaller guards as your best player. It's not great in the NBA. That's harder to build a championship team around a small guard than it is to build it around a switchable scoring wing like Kawhi or LeBron or Durant or Michael Jordan or a lot of these players we've seen over the course of time. But John Morant, okay. There's talent there. There's explosive athleticism. It's there whispering in your ear. Okay, this is the exception to the rule. You always got to believe that about your players. If they're young and they're talented. Maybe they don't check every single box of the traditional championship centerpiece, but you go, well, just watch game five and go back to the dunk at the end of that third quarter. I mean, it's the highlight of the playoffs so far. Memphis is down and he just elevates, he jumps, jumps Malik Beasley and just kind of jump starts what turned into a frantic fourth quarter comeback for the Grizzlies where Rant hits the go-ahead three. He hits the game-winning layup on a play that Anthony Edwards, who is being given room to grow on the Minnesota side, just runs off into oblivion. Hopefully that's a little blip for him that he learns from. But Morant, completely unafraid of the moment. Sometimes, maybe to the detriment of the team. That's something that I've thought about as I've watched this series, as they head into game six tonight, that we now, or you listeners will know the result of. But through five games, I'm going, the highlights are great. (laughs) Game five, just... Just between those three things, the go-ahead three, the game-winning layup, and that dunk at the end of the third quarter, I mean, that's an all-time highlight reel right there. But when I watch the entire game, I'm a little bit underwhelmed. As I think about John Morant on this tippy-top tier and have expectations of him as a championship player, I don't, I'm not crossing out. I'm not saying no, no way. But I'm going, okay, it's hard to be a small guard in this league if you are the best player on a team hard to build a championship team around that. So I'm seeing things that need to be improved upon in order for you to obtain that, which he definitely could. The jury is completely still out on a player of his caliber who has immense talent. But the questions are there and I go, all right, you got to find how to play at different gears in the playoffs. You cannot just be balls to the wall all the time. A similar thing to what Westbrook brought earlier in his career, which is incredible in the regular season and at times incredible in the playoffs but really smart teams are going to feast upon that. They're going to take advantage of it and they're going to say, all right, we can just send him into a fray of bodies and he's always going to be trying to dunk over everybody. That's not going to go great against a really good defense, a team that's not Minnesota. Go and watch a player like Chris Paul, who yes, below the rim player, very different in that sense. But if you want to understand how to play at different gears in the playoffs and you're a small guard, go and watch that dude on a loop and you will understand perfectly. This is how basketball should be played for somebody like this. And then the second thing is, Okay, this is always the question of smaller guards. A lot of it will just come down to effort because physically you're not going to be able to do as many things as other people, but can you learn how to hold your own defensively when the opposing team hunts you on the end? That will be a question for John Morant's entire career. Same question that Steph Curry has and has had. A lot of that was mitigated by the roster that was structured around him. They said, Steph Curry's never going to be a good defender. Uh, If he gives effort, that's all we ask out of him. We'll cover him up with the rest of these incredible, great switchable wings, whether that's Draymond, Clay, Igudala, uh, into the present day, Gary Payton, people like that. You can mitigate a lot of that if the roster around you is solid. Now, there will always be that there. Uh, Sometimes you just can't eliminate that completely. 2016. How the Cleveland Cavaliers came back from that 3-1 deficit in large part was switch hunting, 
Steph Curry on every single play relentlessly. If you go back and watch game five, six, and seven, it was LeBron and Kyrie pick and roll. Didn't matter who the ball handler was. And if they tried to hide Curry elsewhere on somebody who wasn't Irving, they brought them up into the pick, got the switch, brought Irving over and said, whoever you get on between these two, we're going at you because you are not going to stop either. And he couldn't because that's a lot to ask of a good defender, much less one who is not very good. That will be the question for John Morant moving forward. The same series contains maybe the most perplexing player of the playoffs. Carl Anthony Towns, a person who my mind is made up on, but it could be changed if something insane happens. I will admit that there is room for this dude to grow. I will admit the talent is there. And I know that he has virtually no playoff reps. This is the second time in his career that he's been to the playoffs. The first was against Houston. They got bombed out. Now they're either going into game seven or they're going to be out after six against Memphis. So in that sense, he, he needs room to grow. Playoffs are different from the regular season. But as I watch him through the first five games, I go, holy hell, dude. Some of these things that you're doing are infuriating. There are insane. No basketball player on planet Earth should be committing the turnovers that you do just careless, lackadaisical, dribbling off your foot in the final minute of game five. The complaining to the extent where you're just willing to not even be involved with the play because you'd rather hang out next to the ref and bitch about what you thought was a foul. And then we watch on replay was clearly not. Whether it is or isn't is irrelevant. Just go and play. The boneheaded fouls that put him in foul trouble where he's just running into people and falling over and picking up seems like two or three fouls a game that have nothing to do with basketball whatsoever. I watch him and I go, I, I sometimes, I think you don't even understand what flow is in a basketball game. I think you just kind of want to float in and float out and do your own thing and treat it like it's just a pickup game. And that's fine if that's what you want to be, but that is not going to work in the playoffs. And the Timberwolves, a young up and coming team who have two really intriguing pieces that are young in him and Anthony Edwards, they got to be asking themselves a lot harder questions and in turn asking Carl Anthony Towns a lot harder questions and going back into film study and practice and saying, look, let's pluck out these 15 dumbass plays that you're making every game and see how we can eliminate those. If you want to grow into the best version of yourself, the flip side of that is just what I kind of feel as I'm watching him. I go, ah, I think this might just be who he is. I might be wrong. Five years down the road, this could be a completely dumbass opinion on my part. It also could be a thing where five years down the road, we have kind of a consensus about him in the way that we arrived at with Westbrook, where you just say, this guy's got talent. He can do great things. He is not a winning player. He is not somebody that I would want to build a championship contender around because you cannot. There's another really interesting examination. Trey Young, player who just got eliminated from the playoffs. But speaking of franchises that have to give a player room to grow and then just ride the roller coaster that comes with that, it's been polar opposite playoff experiences the last two years for Trey Young, including my perception of Trey Young as a player. Heading into last season's playoffs, I'm squarely in the camp of if this is your player, you are in trouble. He's a small scoring guard. He doesn't give a shit on defense. Sometimes it just seems like he's an inefficient chucker of the basketball. Seems hard to build around this if it, this is your best player. And then the Hawks blast the Knicks in round one. They take the Sixers to seven games in game two and win game seven on the home court of Philly. Trey Young's awesome in both these series. They perform admirably against the Bucks, take them to six games. Trey Young's good in that series again. And coming out of those playoffs, I go, hmm, I might be wrong. 
Maybe the game has evolved enough where offense is so important and three-point shooting is so important that as long as you have the correct roster around him, something similar to what Golden State did with Curry, but even more so because Trey Young is so much worse defensively than Curry. If you build something up like that, okay, I can kind of see how his skill set will work in the playoffs because I just saw it for three rounds. And then this season, they bum around in the regular season, get in the play-in, make the playoffs, just get monster mashed by Miami. And now I'm sitting here going, maybe I was wrong about being wrong. <laughs> maybe I'm back where I started. Because in five games against Miami, I go and pull his shooting numbers and turnover numbers. Because that's what stood out every time I watched these games. I'm just going, this, what is happening? Seems like he turns it over every other play and he's bricking every jump shot. And yeah, they're eliminated in five games. These are Trey Young's numbers in those five games. He's one for 12 with six turnovers in game one. Then he's 10 for 20 with 10 turnovers in game two. Six for 14 with three turnovers. Three for 11 with five turnovers. Two for 12 with six turnovers in the elimination game of game five. Uh, those are very bad numbers, <laughs> very bad. And as I'm watching that and I'm going, ah, a big physical, really good defensive team. That's what Miami is. If they are able to do this to you, a smaller scoring guard who wants to be the heliocentric player of the Atlanta offense, the sun that everything orbits around. If a team like that can do this to you and you combine that with your consistently atrocious defense, and the ways that teams will always be able to switch hunt you on the defensive side of the ball. Well, now my sentiment and a lot of people's sentiment about Trey as a championship player, it swung back the other way where I'm going, I don't know. I think this might be too hard. You have to be a transcendent offensive player like Steph Curry. And again, Trey is significantly worse defensively than Steph. I don't even want to compare those two in that facet. So think of how good Steph has to be offensively in order to make that work and have the roster around him. And with Trey, I go, you have to be even better offensively because you're even worse defensively. We're just thinking of it in those balancing terms. And then there's a lot of stress on Atlanta to build the perfect, and I mean picture-perfect roster around you in order to even try to get this to work. That's where I'm at right now with him. I could change again next year or down, years down the road. This stuff is not static. There's always new information coming in every single year in the playoffs. Really fun to pay attention to. Really fun to track. Last but not least is a player from my home state team, Donovan Mitchell. Much like John Morant and much like Trey Young. He falls into that smaller scoring guard who is looking to buck the trend of not being able to be a championship centerpiece. With the Jazz, you're talking about a team that's they're always caught between a rock and a hard place. They don't have the luxury of going out and just signing a bunch of free agents and this is how we'll build our team. They have to obtain people and give them room to grow and hope that against the odds, this can be a championship centerpiece style of player. We can draft one in the late first round like Gobert. We can draft one in the early teens like Mitchell or 12 or wherever he was. You have to do that as a small market team. So through the first four seasons of his career, great playoff score. The one thing that I'm praising him constantly for, the one thing that I think Everybody watched and said, this makes sense. Now, does it make sense as the centerpiece of a championship team? That question has always been up for debate. And this year, mm, we're seeing a similar thing to what Trey Young has been going through. So again, the Jazz play tonight. You will know whether or not they've won or lost game six and are going to a game seven. But I think the jury on Mitchell, it's in flux, regardless of who wins and who loses game six. Because... Mitchell has struggled through five games to do the thing against Dallas that he has to do, score. And 
score relatively efficiently. That's really been problematic in this series because through the first five games, it's been high volume chucking. It's been 10 for 29 in game one. It's been 13 for 30 and 10 for 21 and seven for 21 and four for 15. Through those five games, he's attempted 41 three-pointers. He's made eight of them. That is less than 20%. That is not good on a very high volume of three-point attempts. Now, interestingly enough, as we're thinking about the ceiling of this particular player and what you need to build around, all that kind of stuff, the struggles on offense for him has, in a roundabout way, really shined a light on his defensive flaws. Because when he's not scoring, you go, uh, well, what else can you do? And then you really start to pay attention to what, through five games, has been the fatal flaw of defense in this series, just an inability to stop anybody. And Mitchell has been right at the forefront of that, right at the point of attack. Pick your metaphor of choice. He's been the matador. He's been the traffic cone, the turnstile. He's been the toll booth that doesn't charge a toll. Just, hey, come on through. Let's keep the traffic moving. <laughs> just nice and easy, you know, whatever you want to choose. That's been him. It's been absolutely atrocious. It's been embarrassing in my opinion. Now, there's two ways this can go. We could look back on it and go, this is what Donovan Mitchell is. He's a dude who wants to score, who can do that really good at times and at other times, maybe not as much. Doesn't want to play defense, doesn't really give a shit on that end. And that's just who he is as a player. We could look back on this particular series and time as when the light bulb is going on. And we now know that in retrospect. It also could be a moment that you reflect upon yourself and you turn it into something like the gap between the 2011 finals and the 2012 finals for LeBron. And you say, I very clearly understand what went wrong here, what my flaws are. And if I can improve them, how do I improve them? Now, very, very few players are able to ascend to the level of championship centerpiece. It is a very select group. But regardless of your franchise, when you have that talent coming up, you have to believe in it. You have to give that player or players room to grow. You have to put them in the best possible situation for years. And then at that point, you're able to understand where the plateau is. It's an unavoidable process. It's really hard and it usually ends in heartbreak. That is a fact of trying to grow in life. That is a fact of trying to build a championship contender in sports. That is a fact of trying to find the centerpiece right at the heart of that. For every LeBron or Giannis, there's 30 people, maybe more, that we think maybe, 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 maybe you could be a centerpiece. I see a lot of talent here. Seems like there's room for potential, room for growth. And then it's proven otherwise because it's hard to get to that point. Growth becomes stagnation, right? So I look at a player like Mitchell, who has been given ample room to grow and much like LeBron after those 2011 finals. Uh, moving forward, he has a choice. Is this who you want to be? Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawl Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. You would like to subscribe to my newsletter, which you should. You can do that at my website, chrisrawl.com. Click the subscribe button. I will send you an email every Wednesday. It will contain thoughts, presumably about, oh, I don't know, maybe the NFL draft. I don't know, maybe about the Colorado Avalanche and the Stanley Cup playoffs, and maybe about the Utah Jazz and the NBA playoffs and LeBron and all the things that I love talking about. So go there, sign up, enjoy your weekend. I'll be back here on Tuesday morning to talk about 
who the hell knows what, but I'm sure it's going to be awesome. See you then.